Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and advocate for the eco-socialist platform that Angela Walker and I ran on. And today we're going to talk about imperialism with Promise Lee, who's a socialist activist uh, from Hong Kong, currently based in Los Angeles. He's a member of several socialist organizations, including the DSA, the Tempest Collective, and Solidarity. He's also a member of the Laozong Collective of Hong Kong and Chinese leftists, and he's a tenant organizer in Los Angeles's Chinatown. And his articles have appeared in many publications against the current Green Left, Jacobin, The Nation, Spectre, Tempest. And if you Google him, you'll find a lot of articles. We got three we'll post in the chat as we go along. Um, But I asked Promise to come on the podcast today to talk about the nature of imperialism in the world today and what the transition from a unipolar world of U.S.-led Western dominance to a multipolar world of competing capitalist states, what that means for anti-imperialist and socialist activism, and also how this understanding of imperialism that he's going to present applies to the case of Hong Kong, where the U.S. and international left was divided on whether to support the pro-democracy movement a few years ago in Hong Kong, as the left has been divided on a number of other cases like Iran, Syria, and Ukraine. So promise, thanks for coming on the podcast. And let's just get started with a few questions for you. First question, some on the U.S. and international left maintain that U.S.-led Western imperialism is the only imperialism in the world today. And therefore, they say any imperialists uh, should support countries like Iran, Syria, Russia, and China because they're in conflict with Western imperialism. The idea that the enemy of my enemy, which would be U.S. imperialism, is my friend. Um, Or they say, at least, if we don't support those countries, uh, we we don't support the freedom and justice movements from below in those countries that challenge their ruling classes. And in some cases, they absolutely denigrate these movements as mere proxies for Western imperialism. And then there are others like you and me on the left who say we oppose all imperialisms and support progressive movements of the popular classes in every country rather than support one camp of imperialists against another. So you've written some articles. We'll put them in the chat. But why don't you give us an overview of how you see the structure of global imperialism today and what that means for anti-imperialism and international social solidarity? Great. Um, Yeah, first of all, thanks, Howie, for uh, having me on. Um, It's a big question. I'll start kind of big, and we'll slowly work our way down, right? So. my analysis of global imperialism is that I think the first thing to remember, as, as, especially as we're thinking about these rivaling blocks of state, is that we remember that, especially in classical theories, uh, classical Marxist theories of imperialism, right? That it sees that as a certain characterization of the world system, right? As it exists in general, right? There are individual capitalists, or sorry, in, uh, imperialist states, but imperialism also exists, right, as a kind of world system, a particular stage of capitalism, right? Lenin says it's the monopoly stage of capitalism. Um, the competition between states dividing the world market, right, making, you know, 
ethnic chauvinism, the growth of national liberation struggles, national oppression, uh, more and more acute. Um, these are things that are diagnosed, right, since the age of, you know, Nikolai Bukharin and Lenin, et cetera, in the First World War. And I think there are a lot of meaningful differences, right, between that moment and now. But I think there are important characteristics that remain um, um, salient in the same today, mainly the ones I just kind of listed, right? And one important point that, you know, Bukharin especially, right, that Lenin also kind of picked up on a bit, really emphasized, and I think is really important, right, is that to look at imperialism as a world system, especially in, in, in that period in the last century, right, is to see both the internationalization of capital and the nationalization of capital, right? Seeing both as uh, uh, a kind of dialectical movement that occurs together so that the growth of monopolies, which has, you know, only, you know, deepened much more since Lenin's time when Lenin first diagnosed it, has only, you know, grown to monstrous heights, right? Monopoly growing from free competition. But as Lenin talked about, right, I think this is actually a really important point, right, that, that that's that's important for us in terms of understanding the development of imperialism today, right, is that monopolies emerging from free competition does not eliminate intense antagonisms that exist in the world system. And I'll, I'll expand more on that point later too, right? So the U.S. US hegemony, right, still, I, I do still think US, um, the U.S. imperialism is still a dominant imperialist force shaping, right, the imperialist world system. But the thing to know is that it's ter the terms of U.S. hegemony is being renegotiated, right? Especially with the rise of emerging imperialists, right? Some are sub-imperialists and some are becoming imperialists. And we can, you know, argue a bit about the nuances of, of some of those terms. But the reality is, right, U.S. hegemony, right, is not fully being challenged, right? It's being challenged at some points, but also not really. I think that's the kind of nuance that we need to continue to study and investigate as socialists. So not exactly right, a kind of straightforward inter-imperialist rivalry a la World War One, but at the same time, right, this is not an era of peaceful cooperation, right, between different imperialist actors. And just to give a few examples, right, the predominance of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, right, where, you know, the U.S. traditionally has been a dominant force. But the thing to also remember is that China has the third highest voting power um, in the IMF, right. And so when we talk about, you know, you know, BRICS, right, and all these supposedly alternative anti-imperialist blocks, right? We do remember that, you know, to what extent are these things actually fully delinking, right, from the Western imperial order? It's a big question, right? Um, another example is U.S.-China cooperation, right, and funding the Israeli state. And let me be really clear, right, the U.S. is the dominant funder, right, of Israeli genocide and apartheid. But we also need to look at how, you know, China is also the second highest trading partner of Israel, right, supporting a lot of the solar renewable energy sources, that are now, you know, supporting the operations, right, of the Israeli military. So how do we make sense of all of these kinds of, you know, cooperative tendency, right, between imperialist actors? Azerbaijan's another uh, important example, right? So the kind of persistence of both rivalry and interdependence in a way that's different, right, from U.S. hegemony imperialism, right, dominance of U.S. imperialism in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but at the same time, it's also different from um, the 1910s, right? So there's the growth of these lesser imperialists, right? Growing revanchist claims from Russia and China, right? And Ukraine and, and Taiwan, et cetera. There's the growth of national oppression. And this is something that uh, Sri Lankan Marxist feminist Rohini Hensman has really noted in, in some of her piece, right? That imperialism, the deepening of imperialism accompanies, right? The growth of ethnic chauvinisms, right? Of its own right and different characters in different countries. Another thing to really remember from Lenin that's really applicable for times, right? Is to understand that Russia, China, et cetera, these are lesser imperialists, right? And I think the one one important uh, important point to uh, to really for socialist internationalists to really underscore, right? Especially against liberals, right? 
who see the colonialism of Russia and China, but does not see the, the imperialism of, uh, of the U.S., is to note that they do play right a certain role in maintaining the imperialist world system, right? And it's lesser than the U.S. But what's important, right, that Lenin reminds us in 1914 is that just as Russia was dependent on the finance capital of the West and was not one of the most major imperialist powers in 1914, that has nothing to do with, as Lenin says, the question of national movements, right, and national liberation movements, right, in peripheries of Russia, right? These are kind of separate questions, and we need to talk about them with nuances in each part, right? So the NATO NATO, and the West, we're not saying that doesn't have influence. It still has dominant influence in shaping the world system, but we need to take into account, right, uh, emerging imperialist tendencies in their own right, right, as they exist side alongside, right, in dialectical relationship with this persisting uh, imperialist uh, uh, world system, right? What does it mean that it's trying to get a little slice of the plot pie, right, in this world system through some of these wars? An important way that um, John Smith, right, an important theorist of imperialism, talks about is that imperialist tendencies is, is technically in the DNA of every capitalist country, and that we need a more expansive way of understanding it beyond simply, right, value transfer, right, from the global south to the global north, which, which definitely exists, right? But how can we take into account, right, of the role of sub-imperialist powers and even rival imperialist powers to the U.S. in helping to maintain, right, that transfer of values? And so I'll just, and I'll save it more about this later too, right, the key problem of campism, right, campus politics that you and I, right, how we are, are, are critical of, right, is to show that, you know, obviously we can't be ultra left and denounce, right, every single state that exists in the world in the same fashion, but at the same time, what's really important for socialist internationalists to remember is that we must defend, of course, revolutionary gains, right? But we also need a critical criteria to determine whether the mechanisms we use to defend certain revolutionary or anti-colonial projects end up building its own form of bureaucratism and ushering counter-revolution in the name of defending against counter-revolution, right? And that's precisely what happened, right, with the Chinese state. And so, you know, one thing to remember is, right, you know, a lot of these states might promote even what we might call at best social democratic reforms, wealth distribution, all these things we welcome, right? But what's key is, do they actually, what happens when they contain, right, working class mass independent self-activity, right? Um, when masses of people aren't stirred to action, especially, right, when inter-imperialist conflicts, right, and tensions are occurring, there isn't room, right, for example, in China, right, to talk about an anti-war movement uh, against what's happening in Taiwan, and here we see a similar thing happening, right, especially with Israel and Palestine, right, a kind of neo-McCarthyism um, from the United States against people supportive of Palestine. You know, the, we need to recognize that these types of tendencies, right, to contain mass self-activity is not limited to the U.S., right? It's, it exists in very uneven and different forms across imperialist and rival imperialist blocs, right, and that we need to think about um, um, internationalism as something that can hold accountable, right, and talk about each of these things, right? recognizing again that us is a kind of dominant imperialist force that its power is being renegotiated in these specific ways but at the same time right that doesn't mean that you know the main enemy is at home doesn't mean that we apologize right for other enemies abroad especially right when all of these enemies are so interconnected economically um despite the rhetoric right of rivalry so i'll end there well you covered a lot you covered uh, the second question i was going to ask you about how these different imperialist nations who are competing to get a better position in the hierarchy of global capitalism and imperialism actually do a lot of cooperating. And, uh, you know, and, and then you mentioned the campus. I mean, 
the way I look at it is the campus who choose one block of imperialist, capitalist, authoritarian, sometimes states over uh, against the U.S. block or the U.S.-led block is they do a geopolitical analysis of state interests and pick mm -hmm. a state group or a group of states and they don't do a class analysis of who the oppressors are and who's oppressed. And I, you know, a, an example of that, maybe many people heard it, BJ Prashad was at one of those first rallies at the People's Forum to oppose USA uh, to Ukraine. And he kept saying in the middle of his speech, no war, but class war. But he did no class analysis of Ukraine. His whole talk was about how the US had an interest in blocking Europe and Russia integrating across Eurasia. And it was all about, you know, the interests of different capitalist blocks. And then he keeps blurting out, no war but class war, but there was no class analysis, no understanding of, you know, the forces in conflict, who's oppressed and who the oppressors are in Ukraine. So, I, you know, I think that's a big problem. And uh, you, you invoked uh, Karl Liebnick's famous phrase, the many, main enemy is at home which was a famous leaflet during World War I. But he didn't say the only enemy is at home. And in fact, him and Lenin and their comrades, you know, they were not only opposed in Libnik's case to German imperialism, they opposed Russian imperialism too. And Lenin opposed German imperialism like he opposed Russian imperialism. So that's what an internationalist uh, perspective looks like. So why don't we get to... Uh, a question I was going to ask you about how this all played out in the case of Hong Kong. And, you know, they, they had the anti-extradition bill that China wanted passed so people in Hong Kong could be extradited to courts in China. And there was a lot of opposition to that as part of a, a pro-democracy movement that had different political tendencies. But the left internationally, a lot of them didn't look at, you know, the interests of the people of Hong Kong. They looked at China as some kind of uh, leader of an anti-U.S. imperialist bloc that, uh, you know, would, you know, what they say is multipolarity will open up space for socialist development. But, you know, you look at China and all the exploitation of workers there, you know, it, it doesn't give me hope for, you know, if that's what socialism is, if that's what we tell people that's what socialism is, it's not going to be very popular with people. So anyway, talk about the Hong Kong movement and how this global uh, imperialist system and the different state interests and sections of the left related to that struggle. Yeah, I actually had a couple more words to say about, about the cooperation. Maybe I'll go to okay, the Hong Kong ahead. point. I'll, I'll say a few words and lead into that because this all kind of relates, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned this in a, a number of recent articles I wrote, right? That there's a, there's a concept from... Um, August Thalheimer, this kind of German Marxist uh, in the early days of the, of the Third International, that was later taken up by Brazilian Marxists in, in the 1960s, this term called antagonistic cooperation, which I find is extremely helpful, immensely helpful in, in helping us understand, right, how rivalry and interdependence can still coexist in a way, right, that violent tensions between states can exist, and Ukraine uh, is a very important example of that, right, but at the same time, the conservation of the capitalist system, right, is everyone's shared interests, even though antagonistic uh, contradictions may happen. And I want to just name one kind of line in in, in this Brazilian Marxist group that really expanded on this term, uh, Politica Operaria, uh, Pola, 
in their uh, one of their kind of programs in 1967 had this really important line they didn't fully expand on, but I think it's actually extremely important for us to understand today. They talked about how they recognize that people of certain countries can have a strong anti-imperialist sentiment, including those right in the colonies in the third world, right? And these new ruling classes, so-called, right, the kind of revolutionary nationalist bourgeoisies of, of the colonies. So they say that the ruling classes are obliged to respect to make this anti-imperial sentiment felt in their words, in their foreign policy. But this nationalism, right, which seems to trap challenge the tra traditional imperialist order, actually a lot of times serves as a pressure on traditional imperialist powers to improve the terms of their own economic relations to continue imperialist exploitations, right, but under a new sovereignty. So I think that's an extremely important point. I'm going to connect that to Hong Kong thing uh, uh, in a brief moment, right? That a lot of native bourgeoisies, right, so-called um, um, the national uh, the national liberation movement, the bourgeois nationalists of these movements, right? They would, you know, um, fall into. They would pay attention to people and would adopt an anti-imperialist rhetoric, right? And BRICS, right, is especially good at doing this nowadays. But at the same time, what's actually really happening is that they're only renegotiating, right? the terms of their participation, right, and maintaining the imperialist system while kind of parroting this type of rhetoric, right? And Patrick Bond, Ana Garcia, and some other political economists called this talking left and walking right, right? Um, that, you know, they say a lot of anti-imperialist stuff, right? And at most, right, there are these kind of developmental policies. But on the other hand, right, what's happening is that they're completely still reifying, right, and, and, and reinforcing the imperialist system, right, and, and the capitalist world system in all these ways. And I just want to name a couple more examples, right? The fact that, for example, right, uh, President Xi Jinping was just at the APEC uh, forum in San Francisco. There were major U.S. CEOs, right, that are uh, calling for actually further um, collaboration between U.S. and China. You know, there is a crisis, right, uh, in the state of global capitalism. Profit rates are falling and capitalists are trying to find new ways to restore, right, the rate of profit. And so you get actually a large segment, right, major sector of traditional Western capital who actually doesn't want the rivalry, right? And one really important, just like really great quote that captures this is by Thomas Fazi in, in, in Unheard. He said this thing, and I agree with everything that, that Thomas Fazi says, but I thought this is a great way to summarize what's going on here, right? He says that the greatest resistance to the so-called new Cold War is not coming from the global peace movement, but actually from the boardrooms of Western cooperations, uh, corporations. So we need an alternative to both of those things, right? U.S. hawks, right, Western hawks who are using China, Russia, as an example, to beef up the military complex. But at the same time, right, recognizing that no new Cold War without the class analysis, Howie, that you're talking about, right, leads us straight directly, right, to certain sectors of the capitalist class who wants globalization, right, wants U.S.-China trade, right, and peaceful cooperation, but for the benefits of the capitalist class, right, and not for working class movements. A couple more examples, right. Xi Jinping and a lot of Chinese uh, ministers repeatedly reaffirms, right, and I quote, the market in playing a decisive role in their resource allocation, and they continue to uphold the World Trade Organization at the center, right. He repeats this quote almost every year, right, and a lot of ministers, right, repeat this in, 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 in the PRC in China, repeats this to business elites almost in a, in a you know, bi-monthly basis, right. COMAC, right, a Chinese state-owned uh, uh, uh uh, kind of airplane manufacturer is often seen as a competition to Boeing, but they actually just signed a new um, joint research center uh, late last year. Um, Chinese imports to the U.S. Right? Or people were talking about how you know decoupling um, uh, U.S.-China rivalry 
uh, imports have significantly dropped right to the U.S. But in reality, if we actually look at the facts and data on the ground, a lot of these imports are actually just being rerouted through Mexico, Vietnam, right? A lot of these kinds of mid-sized states that actually have a key role to play in facilitating global imperialism, right, with respect to these different actors. Vanguard, right, which everyone knows has a, a tons of problematic investments, actually have major shares in Exxon and the Chinese state-owned Sinopec, right, two traditionally seen as rival, right, petroleum uh, companies. So what are the implications here, right? And I'll say more about that after going to the Hong Kong thing. Um, but to respond to your question about Hong Kong, right, so what I see with what's happening there, especially in the last few years, is, of course, China tightening, right, mass activity, right, worker self-activity in all these ways, consolidating control over periphery countries that are traditionally, right, not, um, it has more of a tenuous hold um, with in terms of Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang. This is the kind of part of the kind of imperialist DNA, right, of every capitalist country. And China's finding this moment, especially with, you know, uh, burgeoning, emerging new inter-imperialist tensions that it needs to consolidate, right, its spheres of influence in these places, right? And so when there's this kind of organic mass movement that emerged, right, with the anti-extradition bill, and, you know, the, this this movement is not, does not just kind of emerge overnight, right? The important thing to remember about this movement is that there are many, many other, right, protests since the handover, right? Different generations of people who've grown up under increasing uh, authoritarian encroachment, right, by the Chinese state. And there have been many different mass movements building towards, right, um, um, this kind of showdown, right, between a, a very broad and complicated pro-democracy movement, right, and the Chinese authoritarian capitalist state, right? And so 2019 was, you know, sorry for the bill, but it was actually much more, right, uh, than the bill in a lot of these ways. And on the other hand, right, U.S. being the dominant imperialist actor, wants to contain, right, in its own way, Chinese influence, right, the, the kind of spread uh, of its kind of rival imperialists, right, in these ways. And I think it's important, right, to actually talk about the differences, right, between how the U.S. Uh, uh, exactly um, relates to these various kinds of uh, uh, pro-democracy movements that it tries to kind of stir up and to kind of carve a block for itself, right, um, for its influence. But I think basically that's the important thing, right? Again, antagonistic cooperation, again. What's something that's important uh, in 2019, 2020 is that leading up to 2021, U.S.-China trade has actually reached an all-time high, right? So while these tensions are actually growing, right, the U.S. is threatening and, and, and trying to carve out their proxies, right, in these broad movements, right, trade is actually booming, actually, right, in a lot of these ways, um, if you look at another level. So our analysis of imperialism, why it's important, is that it allows us to understand, right, all of these contradictions together in its entirety. And I'll say a bit more about what I just said earlier about um, this, this idea that so-called, you know, especially uh, uh, national bourgeoisies of formerly oppressed nations, right, can actually continue traditional imperialist structures, right? Um, and Hong Kong is a very key site of that. Before the handover uh, in 1997, what's important to know is that the uh, kind of agents of the Chinese Communist Party or, or its organizations of influence, right, actually lobbied the British, right, to preserve and retain undemocratic structures um, and to advocate for laws and legislations that are actually more sympathetic, right, and more profitable for pro-business elites. So when we look at the last seven or 10 years leading up to the handover, there was a lot of discussion and mobilization about calling for finally an expansion, right, of universal suffrage, which the British never granted, um, by Hong Kong uh, democracy movements. And the CCP, right, and its organs were actually one of the many forces 
pushing the British, right, against the expansion, right, of universal suffrage, right? And another kind of important moment is that in 1989, a couple months after the Tiananmen uh, massacre, right, actually a group of socialists, Hong Kong socialists, protested some Chinese officials' visit to the uh, to Hong Kong, and the British police brutally uh, uh, attacked, right, and brutalized these protesters doing the bidding of the Chinese state, right? And th there was a telegram and message basically leaked by one of the governors or, or basically one of the high-ranking officials of Hong Kong, uh, of colonial Hong Kong to the CCP at the time, that they'll respect the terms of the Sino-British Joint Declaration and they'll protect CCP interests in Hong Kong, right? And so this is inter-imperial collaboration, right? At its finest uh, in these moments, right? That British cops and Chinese, right, influence are working together to contain anti-imperialist uh, democracy protesters, socialists, right? And that completely stays, right, after the handover. In fact, a lot of colonial era legislation, right, is actually actively preserved and weaponized by the Chinese state to maintain forms of economic exploitation, right, and political control. An another couple of examples, right? Colonial era laws passed by the British government against worker strikes. There are a lot of these same laws that were used against Hong Kong protesters, right? In 2019, 2020, like they, they literally just preserved and recalled the same laws, right? Another important thing is that most high ranking police officials and officers uh, currently in the Hong Kong police force, right? Were actually trained uh, under kind of the colonial period. The, the colonial period. So in a lot of in a lot of ways, actually, a lot of these police off colonial trained police officers, they just stuck around, right, um, after the handover. And in fact, there's tons of evidence, right, that the Chinese state themselves would admit to that there is active collaboration and training, right, between Hong Kong police officers and British and American police academies. So that's another thing, right? Imperialism, of course, right, the sovereignty of the people is an important thing. But at the same time, Hong Kong has never actually got a chance, right? to talk about the terms of this change in sovereignty, where the voices, right, of Hong Kong people in relation to the handover and how the unresolved tensions from that, right, caused, right, and built up a lot of the resentment, right, and political opposition that we see kind of blow up in the spectacular way in 2019. But on the other hand, right, it's not just a question of sovereignty, right? The other hand is that there are all these structures and the dynamics of imperialism that were preserved even after, uh, Hong Kong was kind of returned, quote unquote, right, from Britain to China. So how do we make sense of these dynamics, right? It calls for us to understand imperialism as a very diverse and complicated phenomenon. I'll say, say a couple more things about uh, uh, the left in Hong Kong and also rebuilding the left there. The left is extremely weak, right, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, et cetera, right? And for, you know, two reasons, right, I would say primarily. One is this idea that the um, counter-revolutionary, thoroughly capitalist Chinese Chinese state has been seen by a lot of people as representative of the left, right? And so, a lot of people in Hong Kong, when they when you say the left, they would just think uh, right of the authoritarian state, right, an authoritarian capitalist state, right, to be precise. And so, there is a complete confusion, right, of political traditions, and the CCP has just you know been um, very uh, um, intent, right, on specifically clamping down, right on alternate forms of socialist communistic tendencies, right, and movements, because those provide kind of a challenge, right, to its legitimacy, right, as a voice of workers and, and people and stuff like that. So there's actually a major, right, splintering um, disconnection with generations of Hong Kong and Chinese Marxists, um, independent socialists in a lot of these ways. I've been 
extremely severed, right, in a very targeted way by the Chinese state. And so you have generations of people growing up just not knowing what the independent left even means, right? So that's kind of one problem there, right? And the second problem I would say is that there is a lot of colonial nostalgia back home, right? And this is what a lot of the campus really weaponized. And a lot of it is true. And I think this is something that me and a lot of leftists have long talked about in a lot of these ways, right? That colonial nostalgia, pro-liberal, pro-Western tendencies in Hong Kong is a major problem. It's deeply rooted, right? It's also the result of generations and decades of liberal, Sinophone, pro-Western, right, commentators, right, that a lot of people see as the only alternative, right, to Chinese authoritarianism and capitalism, right, that people don't know what it means to look at, right, independent left traditions, right, grassroots tradition as a way, right, to talk about a framework of resistance, right? And so we have generations, right, of people writing in Chinese, right, talking about why we need liberalism, why we need the aid of the US, right? And this is completely, right, stuck, right, in the psyche, right, of a lot of people who are critical of the government, right? And it's gonna take a lot of effort, right, especially with the decimation of civil society now to raise left-wing voices, right? To say we need a critical alternative to the liberal voices, right, in our movement. And that's gonna take a lot of time. Um, I'll just say a thing about anti-Asian violence, right, and racism that 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 that's kind of problematized some of these discourses too. And I think it's very important to th uh, think about Chinese Americans, right? That still has traits and characteristics of an oppressed minority in Western countries, right? Active discrimination against uh, these populations, and we can't equate this idea, right, that Chinese Americans have this characteristic of being an oppressed minority in these nations with the false idea and belief that China is somehow still an oppressed nation. And this is where, again, recalling what Lenin said in 1914, right? A lesser imperialist, right? Just because an imperialist state isn't just as strong, right, as the most powerful one, doesn't mean, right, that it is, right, an oppressed nation, right? Doesn't mean that it can't exert its own violent forms of control against even lesser nations, right? So I think these are distinctions that socialists need to uh, be very clear in holding, right? On the one hand, yes, right, there is rampant discrimination fueled, right, by decades of U.S. imperialism against Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, right? And there is this kind of oppression that exists, right? At the same time, right, China's using that, weaponizing, right, that kind of racist violence, right, for its own imperialist purposes, right? Trying to say that it is an oppressed nation, right, fighting U.S. imperialism. While in reality, it's helping U.S. imperialism renegotiate the terms of its existence, right? Once again, a lesser imperialist, right, is not necessarily an oppressed nation, right? I think that's a distinction that we need to kind of hold um, very importantly in, in our head. And I'll just end with this, right? By saying why talking about cooperation between imperialists is important? Because, right, it provides us an alternative to two extremes, right? One hand, liberals, right? Who don't see the violence of US imperialism. On the other hand, right, campists, right? Who don't recognize the fact that US, China, Russia, in spite of these inter-imperial tensions, have still these extremely salient connections with each other, right, that we can actually target, right? And my point is that we can't resist US imperialism without talking about its investments in China, its collaborations of Chinese elites. We can't talk about fighting US imperialism without fighting US imperialism as well, right? And Apple, for example, its collaboration with Foxconn, right, a Taiwanese company, that's long been sheltered by the, the 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 kind of Chinese government to promote right profit rates within its country right. Um, these are different ways in which these imperialist and capitalist forces are interconnected. So when Chinese workers last year around the same time in October 2022 
revolted right against Foxconn authorities. Foxconn called right Chinese state local cops to suppress the workers, and not only that, party cadres were sent as scabs right when workers started escaping from Foxconn to preserve the supply chain of Foxconn to preserve the supply chain of Apple products right to Apple. So that to me is a very clear example of how you literally can't delink these imperialisms, right? It's not even a matter of consistently opposing different rival imperialists, right? It's a matter of recognizing that even rival imperialists, right, actively collaborate in these ways. And that's a critical opportunity for socialists and mass movements to target as a way to both push or sideline the liberals, right, who just focus on anti-China rhetoric and also sideline or push or organize, right, campists, right, who just refuse to see the fact that U.S. imperialism is tied together with the interests of other imperialists, even those it's in conflict with. Okay, I, I think that gives people enough, uh, a lot of material to, to think about and comment on and ask questions about. I would just note that, uh, you know, what you describe as the problem in the you know Chinese area of Asia, where the left is associated with an authoritarian police state, is a problem. You know, I know from working with people in Ukraine and the post-Soviet countries, is a problem there because of what how authoritarian the Soviet state was, and it's a problem here because the idea of socialism in the popular mind for many people is associated with you know, the, the Soviet police state. And the thing about the campus who consider themselves on the left is they reinforce that. Because <laughs> the enemy right. of U.S. imperialism is their friend, even if it's a police state like Syria or China or Iran. And so that's, uh, you know, I appreciate what you said about Asia, but I, I guess I'm just noting that it's an international problem for the left. So... Um, and, you know, how we get out the idea that socialism is the most, we're the most uh, principled, consistent Democrats, small d. Exactly. You know, we're for full political and economic democracy. And that is a, a problem that the campus keep confusing people with. Anyway, let's, let's see, uh, you know, let's see some comments and questions from, from people who've been listening. So Chris will put them up. Here we go. Violet, Violet, Violet at Content Boutique. It's so sad oppressed people look to the U.S. for help with the leadership we have these days. I wonder if the U.S. ever helped anyone without having some economic agenda. Yeah, no, that's really real, right? And I think for me, it's about understanding why certain oppressed people, right, do this, certain oppressed communities and, 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 and organizations, right? And the role of the left to, you know, you need to be with the people, right, who are critical of the government and to help folks sort through this bullshit, right, of, of thinking that the U.S. is this kind of uh, 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 kind of savior that, 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 you know, has this agenda of salvation and liberation, right? And so that's why a lot of the work that a lot of us on the left are doing, right, is to be embedded, right, being critical support of these movements against, right, Chinese state and authoritarianism, imperialism, while at the same time doing our best to push out articles, propaganda, and other things to point out the history of how U.S. has betrayed, right, and actively bombed and massacred in a lot of these movements, right, in Asia uh, uh, for democracy in a lot of these ways, right? So I think for me, the problem is always um, how do we raise this question, right, among these communities? And I think 
what's so important actually, right? Going back to the Palestine issue that, you know, there was just actually this uh, hundreds of people just marched in Taipei, right? In Taiwan, another, right? Uh, site of inter-imperialist conflict for Palestine, right? And a lot of those are pro, uh, pro-independence, Taiwanese independence activists, right? Trying to fight against the Chinese state while at the same time providing alternative to liberals. And to me, it's about when these moments exist, and they're always going to be small, right? Because of the problems we just talked about. How do we keep encouraging, amplifying, quickening, right? Um, when people organically, right? Or, or, or through the leadership of the left, right? Come to, right? Positions where they can actually talk about, right? Um, yeah, maybe the U.S. isn't this kind of rosy thing. How can we stay with these people, right, and keep encouraging them to think this way, keep encouraging them to kind of think between issue and connect between them? Um, I think that's an important task for us, right, because it's easy to recognize that, that, you know, there are certain oppressed communities who would look to U.S. for help and why that's so sad, right? The hard part, right, is how do you reverse that, right? How do you challenge that belief in a way that, you know, doesn't totally isolate you, right, from these communities, right, but actually really encourage them, right, to take a critical role to the U.S. too, as as part and parcel, right, of their fight against this rival imperialist of the U.S. Violet Content Boutique, do you really think it's possible to construct a culture without power trippers? I'm not sure it's possible. Yeah, I'm not sure how to answer on, but I'm mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> totally sure how it means. Um, well, I would say if you look at the anthropological record, you know, what, what Marx called primitive com- communism, not meaning it was inferior, but it was at an earlier stage of economic development, there were very cooperative societies, at least internally, um, which were egalitarian, you know, women weren't oppressed. Um, there were no economic classes, uh, and those, you know, they're the same animals we were. They just, you know, lived, some of them still survive in, you know, a few remote areas. So I wouldn't put it down to human nature. I, I, it's possible. That's what, you know, socialism is supposed to do is, is end the oppression of, uh, oppressed groups and, and the exploitation of, of working classes. So it's, a, it's, it's no guarantee we'll get there, but it's certainly, I think, human beings are capable of it. Let's put it that way. Frankie Lee, how can we stop imperialism when we're hamstrung, hamstrung by vulture capitalism? I'm just trying to understand the question. Um, I think the, the capitalist mentality, you know, bourgeois culture. Oh, okay. is all of us. So, you know, how can we oppose the system that we're indoctrinated into? Right. Well, I mean, this is what organizing is, right? This is why we're in movements, right? These are movements, social movements or laboratories, right? For us to carve out and practice, right? And identifying with a different culture of values, right? To encourage us that, you know, um, we can work for our own self-interest, but at the same time, actually organizing collectively, building collective power is actually the best way to guarantee your own interests, right? And material conditions, right? And I think that's why, you know, the movement for Palestine, right? Labor organizing, climate organizing, right? That, that yeah, these are ways for us to think out of uh, a capitalist mindset, right? To 
to think about these these movements as way to uh, as seeds, right? A new society of a new way of thinking and relating to each other world. And that everyday people are, are constantly practicing that, right? It's about how do we kind of make that sustainable in the wrong, long run seems to be the main um, the main question, if I'm understanding that question correctly. Jin L, in the U.S., would a good hmm. strategy for workers be to organize an independent unions to push against multinational corporations that collaborate with imperialist governments? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's my whole that's my whole thesis, right? Yeah, is that, again, even rival governments, right, of U.S. imperialism, I think is what I'm trying to say, is, is still complicit in all these things. And absolutely, right, right, independent unions can be used to push against these multinational corporations that a lot of times, or some of the times, right, are connected to state interests, right, that are supposedly rivaling the U.S., right, and that unions can be a good way to kind of hold all of these things to account. Another phenomenon that I really didn't really fully uh, get into here is public-private partnerships, right, that are becoming kind of increasingly uh, attractive tool, uh, I would say, of ruling classes everywhere, right, and the Chinese state, right, is, is especially also good at that, right, that there are a lot of these um, um, forms partnerships with, you know, private corporations in a lot of these ways, right? But there's it's always a combination of like state-backed and private interests, right? And so that, you know, becomes kind of a key way in which uh, China's kind of role, right, in maintaining global imperialism is often expressed, right? And so when we talk about multinational corporations, right, I feel like that opens up very productively, right, to various forms of um, very various ways we can analyze and understand the capitalist system, right? That, that these new forms of exploitation, right, of imperialist organs are constantly emerging, right? And they're constantly, right, despite, again, the rhetoric of rivalry and tensions that seem to exist between the U.S. and China, the US, U.S. and Russia, there's still all these ways, right, in which um, all these things remain kind of connected. Another good example is, um, you know, there are all these sanctions in Russia, Russian gas and, and all that stuff. But there are two actually important ways, right, in which a lot of the stuff is still cohesive, right, through the role of multinational corporations. I think it's the Caspian Caspian Pipeline Consortium, right, that that um, is often kind of a tool for, for Russia, Russian gas companies, right, to advance its kind of economic and political interests. You know, Chevron is still on that, right? There's a whole campaign for Chevron to, 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 to push Chevron to get out of that corporation. But no, you know, the profit-making motive, right, for a lot of these capitalists, for them sometimes, and a lot of times it's, you know, we continue working even with rival imperialist businesses, right, to maintain, right, certain kinds of resource imperialism that exists. So to this day, right, Chevron, major U.S. Uh, gas energy corporations still work hand in hand, right, with Russian corporations. Another important point, right, is what's going on, again, the ethnic cleansing, right, of Armenians by Azerbaijan, but also that country's specific role, right, has been really interesting. Um, you know, Russia is making kind of deals with it as a way to, get access to various uh, avenues for gas and energy um, because of the sanctions from the West. But at the same time, right, it's the Azerbaijan is also building with Turkey, right, and Tur wants to develop it as a kind of resource hub. And so what's actually happening is that a lot of Turkish gas, right, is used as a hub. And, and these countries are used actually quietly between imperialist blocs, right, Russia and the West, to actually persist and continue, right, uh, resource imperialism through gas and energy thing, except, you know, except, you know, these countries are used to uh, um, quietly whitewash, right? It's kind of ties um, to different imperialist states in order 
for different imperial states to continue trading with each other, right? So, you know, if you get Russian gas to Turkey, right, to kind of be refined in all these ways, Turkey can spin it as now Turkish gas that the West is able to buy, right? Uh, same thing again with Azerbaijan, that a lot of West Western corporations are looking to Azerbaijan as a way to uh, to to discover new energy resources, right? To increase demand uh, with all the sanctions in Russia. And what Azerbaijan is doing is that, you know, there's so much demand from the West, it's actually making new trade deals, gas deals with Russia, right? To actually satisfy the demand of the West, right? And so going back to this question here, right? This is exactly, right, what socialist internationalists should be reading about researching, amplifying, and focusing on, right? That despite these rivalries, that very salient ways in which globalization, neoliberalism continues, right, um, exist, right? And independent unions everywhere, right? Uh, has a role to play in challenging, right, these kind of interconnections between imperialist blocs, right, that are often concentrated in the role of these multinational corporations and, and consortiums, et cetera. Yeah, I would just add to that that one of the sites of uh, multilateral cooperation in international institutions has been the UN uh, framework, what's it called? The, the framework uh, agreement on climate change, which hosts the climate summits. And there, the US and China, for example, uh, got together in, in Paris with, you know, Obama was there to prevent uh, any uh, commitments, you know, that, that countries were expected to meet in terms of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And then the last climate summit, they agreed to, I think the phrase was phase down, but not phase out, coal. And the same countries, including the US and China, uh, were behind that against most of the rest of the world. And then last summer, there was an interim conference sponsored by the UN where it was proposed that uh, the world commit to tripling renewable energy by 2030. And that was uh, vetoed by China, Russia, and India. Now, there was this recent uh, you know, agreement between the U.S. and China when Xi Jinping was in, in California to triple, to, they committed to tripling renewable energy in the world by 2030, although they didn't say how they're going to do that. That's an enormous investment, and none of that was forthcoming. Uh, I'm just saying that maybe the most ominous place where the capitalist powers around the world particularly fossil capital, are cooperating is in preventing real climate action. Right. And, you know, they're more interested in short-term fossil profits than, than you know, long-term long survival of all of us. Right. I want to add to that briefly, actually, too, in terms of climate and coal, right? So actually an important way, which a lot of people aren't talking about, that, you know, China is building up its clean energy and uh, renewable energy resources, right? is on the resources, right, and lands, right, of the peripheries, especially in Tibet and Xinjiang, right, and all these places. So, for example, right, actually, I think what's slated to be the world's uh, biggest hydroelectric dam, right, which China touts as, right, it's, it's part of its path to investing in uh, renewable energy resources, is built on the sacred rivers and lands, right, of, 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 of Tibetan people, and is already projected to displace and harm Right, a lot of kind of local Tibetan communities around that dam, right? And so even 
as they're supposedly pursuing these kinds of more green friendly, right, uh, climate resolution uh, 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 kind of directions, right? They're actually still doing it, right? in ecologically disastrous ways. And I really encourage people to look up the Yarlung Sangpo Dam in Tibet, where this is, again, world's biggest hydroelectric dam that, that China keeps touting, right? But how it's, it's actually destroying, right? Uh, water supplies and a lot of ecosystems and uh, kind of in that area and displacing communities, right? So that is not eco-socialism in any stretch of the imagination, right? I think we need to really point to that and call that out, right? That Canadian companies, US companies, or assisting, right, some of these kind of extractive operations, right? Again, even for um, um, supposedly more renewable and, and clean energy sources that China is investing in. And just on that note, yeah, encouraging people to read uh, Richard Smith's book on called, I think, China's Engine of Environmental Collapse or something yeah. like that, since Pluto Press, yeah, which is a great just diagnosis of why it's structurally impossible, right, for China to actually pursue the kind of carbon or climate uh, commitments that it's uh, that it's long touted. So really encourage that book. Yeah, that's a that's a depressing book, <laughs> but it's it's real. I mean, you got to deal with reality. It's yeah, I recommend that book as well. Janelle, what would be a good way to convince workers that this strategy would be to their benefit? How can it be coupled with higher wages, better lifestyles for all workers? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a, you know, that's a general question for movements as a whole, right? And I think, uh, especially now we're talking about internationalism and rival imperialist countries, right? Um, I feel like the UAW, for example, right, auto workers and, and people organizing around that face a similar question, right? How do you persuade workers around against nationalism, right? Against this whole rhetoric of like, you know, you're, you're only in this condition today, right? As, as bosses and, and imperialist Democrats, right, would, would, would kind of tell them, you know, all these workers are only there today because China's stealing your jobs, right? How do you convince these workers that this type of rhetoric, right, is not, you know, this is not the rhetoric we should be pursuing. This is actually not a rhetoric of liberation, right? And I think the same question, in a sense, relates to this one that's being posed here. How do you convince workers that a strategy of fighting against multinational corporations, right, and all these things uh, can actually be better for all workers? And I would say, yeah, like, again, why it's important to understand, right, the dynamics of imperialism and specifically emerging forms of inter-imperialist rivalry. And I think the way to answer that is that, again, the importance of understanding that all of this stuff is not sustainable for anyone, right? And again, going back to climate, right? That this idea that, you know, we, we, we need to pursue separate strategies in different countries and different movements, it's literally not sustainable, right? If we don't take into account, right, the structures of global imperialism and global capitalism, right? We actually need to connect these things. U.S. and Chinese workers together, right, to actually challenge political systems everywhere, because all of these political systems are interconnected, right, economically uh, in a lot of these ways, that if you genuinely want higher wages and better lifestyles for all workers, right, to preserve, right, the earth, right, as we know it, so we don't all kind of uh, plunge into, you know, extinction, right, we actually need to think internationally, right, we need to think about, you know, how mass movements, right, in authoritarian countries are being contained, right? How mass movements and liberal democracies, right, are being contained in their own ways, right? We need analyses to connect all these things to show that it's not about, um, um, it's not just about your local conditions, right? It's not just about uh, what your country is doing. It's not about another country, especially a, a one that's often racialized, right? Is stealing your jobs or all of these things, right? But it's actually, all of these things are kind of connected, right? That, you know, the study, right? of the dynamics of global imperialism, uh, capitalism, 
is actually really important because it, uh, again, to answer the question, right? Because that is what would convince workers or that what's what should convince workers that in the long run, you need to think internationally, right? In order to best preserve your own material conditions. Yeah, I think the way to think about it also is capitalism is global. And if we're not global and internationally in solidarity with each other as workers, they're going to play one country off against another. So repression of workers in China who work at lower wages lowers the wage levels for the whole world market. So, you know, we can't solve this problem just within our own country. There has to be, you know, an international socialist movement. Right. So Chris Blankenhorn says, connecting our organizing around kitchen table everyday issues to these larger issues is essential too. Our job as socialist organizers is to help connect their real life struggles to the underlying web of systemic causes. In this case, for example, the underfunding of social programs that could help people is directly tied to policies of funding state violence abroad and domestically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's totally agree. In fact, that actually, this is something that's really kind of come up, I think, in important ways uh, in my Chinatown organizing with respect to the Palestine, um, the ongoing genocide in Palestine, right? Um, and the group I organized with in CCD, we organize, uh, you know, a lot of immigrant Chinese workers, right, who... I think, you know, I would just say, like, it, I think it takes a lot of time to rebuild political consciousness in those communities, right? And we've often been contained, I would say, right, beyond our control and very, you know, as classical Marxists would call it, econo economistic struggles, right? You know, fighting against your landlord, right? So you have, uh, uh, you don't have to have a higher rent, right? And all these kinds of bread and butter issues, so to speak, for tenants. The Palestine thing's actually given us an important way to start, you know, really injecting and bringing politics into the discussion, and the last kind of uh, all Chinatown tenant union we had a couple of weeks ago, I think presented a little bit back. Um, and it was interesting to, you know, I think talk about the Palestine stuff in, 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 in Cantonese too, right? I think there's a, there's a translation thing that you kind of need to do, but it's also interesting. I think it's like, how do you connect with these audiences that are very, you know, not fully exposed or exposed in, in very complicated ways to the issues, right? But then also connecting that specifically, right, to what's going on. Um, with the defunding of housing, of affordable housing, all these things going on. And I think what's been really powerful uh, for a lot of people organizing around this issue is that, you know, all this stuff really clicks actually for people. Because I think especially for some some folks who don't really think about politics that we're trying to organize, right? Um, there's a lot of kind of impulse to be like, you know, wait, what, when we're talking about all these kind of international questions, it feels a little abstract, right? But when you say like, you know, the U.S. is now, right, funding funneling billions, right, billions into Israel, right? And remember when the government, right, the city government and the federal government told you that it doesn't have resources, right, to give you all of these things, right, uh, in a highly gentrified area where people are getting displaced every day and there's no affordable housing, right? There's minimal affordable housing and connecting these things together, like what can this money, right, that's currently being used to fund a genocide in Palestine, what else can that actually be for? And I think framing it in that way, right, actually ends up kind of being, you're able to connect with like, you know, communities that have not been activated around the Palestine issue to start thinking about these things is actually a key part, right, of our very local organizing in Chinatown, right, for affordable housing and, um, and you know, against gentrification, a lot of these things, right, why aren't there resources, right, uh, that the city and the government uh, 
uh, continues to say that they don't have enough funding um, um, to give a lot of these low-income immigrant communities, right? And then being able to very realistically point to, you know, look where this money is going, right? It's it's going towards uh, an imperialist operation, right? Funding a genocide in Palestine. And so I think that's been one kind of salient way that uh, I think some of us have been able to connect between, you know, some of these kind of like more can be feel a little more abstract international questions and some of these, you know, local organizing, everyday kitchen table issues that Chris just kind of mentioned. Didi Dimmitt, we could actually reduce future wars by spending money on renewable energy, R&D distribution at the rate we are currently spending on arms, fossil fuels and militarism. The fast tracking of renewables would render moot that major source of aggressive motivation. Mm. Yeah, but I would just add to that to say that, you know, we also need socialist democracy, right? It, it's not just about a technological, a technical or technological shift in what's going on, right? We need renewable energy sources, right, to support, uh, to actually make things sustainable. But we also need to firmly reject, right, variants of green capitalism, right, to say that, you know, if we just turn to renewables, right, and preserve the system as it exists, things are going to be all right, right? That we actually need workers, everyday people's, right, control, right? Radically democratic control, right, over any of these decisions, right, about renewable energy and how they ought to be kind of uh, uh, mobilized around, right? That the key factor here, right, is not, it, it, it is, right, obviously switching away from non-renewables is extremely important, but that also needs to be accompanied, right, by independent mass self-activity, right, of socialist democracy, right? And then, you know, part of what's happening in, in, in authoritarian countries, right, is that that, that um, no matter what they say about how much they're investing into renewables, right, well, you don't grant people that basic right of democracy, right, um, that, you know, as how you're just saying, Marxists have a critical responsibility to be the most vigilant defenders of, right, if we don't have practices of democracy that are embedded, right, in our societies, then, you know, the climate crisis continues to be this kind of looming threat, right? So we need renewable energy sources. We need forms of energy democracy, right? Coupled with socialist practice, right? Social societies and modes of relating to each other. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would add to that, that uh, we can commit to renewables and still have inter-imperialist competition and exploitation for what's needed for renewables, like rare earth minerals. I mean, look up what China Chinese companies are doing in Katanga in the Congo to get cobalt. Child labor, the, the most brutal exploitation, the most old-fashioned imperialist looting you can imagine. Ironically, it was the U.S. and Belgium that uh, had Lumumba assassinated so they could get those minerals, and now it's China doing it. Or the, the Wagner Group with Russia, you know, propping up, uh, police states in, in the Sahel and Central Africa in return for resource concessions, including minerals needed for renewables. Or in Syria, you know, they get a portion of the oil revenues from the uh, uh, wells that uh, are under Syrian government control. Um, so, and then there's intellectual property, which ought to be, a lot of this ought to be the common heritage, the common wealth of humanity. So everybody can use it. Instead, uh, companies and state interests, you know, there's all kind of espionage going on trying to steal this information, uh, you know, and China and the U.S. are 
you know, it's cloak and dagger between them on that. That's that's what you get with a capitalist uh, commitment to renewable energy, which at best is half-hearted because, I mean, just look at U.S. policy. You know, we have these subsidies going to the private sector to develop renewables, but we're still allowing uh, more exploitation, more drilling for oil and gas on public lands under Biden than we had under Trump. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm affirming what, what Promise said. You know, we, we need system change to mm -hmm. stop climate change, uh, not just new technologies, which are available and ought to be implemented. Okay, I see my uh, description up there on the on the uh, screen. So that means we've yeah we've gone for an hour. So promise, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we posted three of Promise's articles in the chat. I hope you will uh, you know copy those and and take a look and read them. A lot of times these uh, you know Promise has a very sophisticated analysis. It's hard to absorb just verbally sometimes, at least in, to, for me, I got to read it and underline it, think about it. So I hope you all would check that out. Um, next week, we'll just have a regular question and answer session. There's a lot going on in the Middle East and in Ukraine and in, you know, uh, politics. I saw one question, uh, which I guess I'll answer now, even though it wasn't asked. And that is, it was addressed to promise, but I don't know how he feels about our presumptive green nominee and uh, that person's uh, credulity toward Russia and Chinese motives and actions and her policy on Ukraine. Um, of course, I'm referring to Jill Stein and uh, I hope people will uh, challenge her on her views, uh, which I don't think are uh, fixed in stone. I think, you know, she's open to constructive criticism and I hope people will do that. I'm I'm giving her critical support, but my criticism is on her affinity to some of the campus uh, groups and forces in in uh, the American left. So I think uh, you know the what's the alternative? You know Biden in support for genocide of Palestinians and you know global U.S. imperialism in so many respects, including Ukraine. I mean we are setting them up for the debt trap. Like the rest of the global south, you know, you talk to Ukrainian leftists, they say we're the northernmost country of the global south. They have an enormous debt problem. And instead of canceling that debt and letting that money be used under democratic control of Ukrainians, uh, the reconstruction of Ukraine, if we get there, is going to be uh, administered by, you know, Western financial and corporate interests who have their own. They're interested in profits, not so much people. So, uh you know, we can support the Ukrainian national liberation struggle without uh, giving unconditional support to the policies of the U.S. or Zelensky or anybody else. Uh, we should support politically the progressive forces in the movements in Ukraine and other countries. So uh, I hope that uh, answers the question that was asked about, you know, how do you reconcile what uh, Promise was saying with the fact that the Green presumptive nominee is is uh, not so good on that question. So that's a discussion to be continued maybe next week on, on this podcast. But in any case, thanks everybody for being here today and we'll be back next week and continue the conversation. Power, love.